and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is Bryn Putnam, CEO of Mirror. We're notorious as a society for falling in love with the next fitness fad. Whether it's diet types, workout regimens, or new fitness equipment, we're suckers for quick fix schemes. It's pretty rare that we come across a product that revolutionizes the way we work out. And in the age of connected hardware and software, we're living through a paradigm shift that allows us to reimagine the fitness experience from first principles. Enter Mirror, a connected fitness system that streams live and on-demand classes to users in-home via a sleek and responsive display. This product is cool, and it's gotten deep vote confidence from some of the best in venture. Mirror has raised over $40 million from Spark, First Round, and Box Group, amongst others. This one was fun, and it was great to hear Bryn's insightful thoughts on the future of Connected Home. Welcome, Bryn, and thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So, Bryn, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on today and you know, dive pretty deeply into Mirror, your perspective on the future of fitness and smart devices in the home as well as some of the challenges of operating a hardware and a software business. But before we jump in, tell us a little bit more about your background and how it led you to founding Mirror. Sure. Um, I've spent my whole career really in the fitness space. I was a dancer at the New York City Ballet when I was a teenager, uh, returned to dancing professionally after I graduated from college and got involved with the boutique fitness uh, studio scene, which was just developing in the mid-2000s as the result of um, honestly just needing a side job to make ends meet as a dancer. Um, When I decided to retire, I began to think about fitness as a a full-time career and um, opened a studio called Refine Method, which um, has grown over the past eight and a half years to three locations here in New York. with its differentiator being that we design and manufacture all of our own hardware. We have a custom piece of fitness equipment that is the centerpiece of our refine experience. Um, And then fast forward to about two and a half years ago, and I found myself uh, the owner of a gym really struggling to work out. Um, I had personally just my my life had sort of evolved um was busier professionally i was newly pregnant and uh, finding it a little bit harder to to get around um and the my own studio just wasn't really a fit anymore um that extra 20 minute walk trying to make the class schedule work and frankly working out in a group of people um with some of the the physical needs that i had at that point um just wasn't really making sense So I started to think about how to work out in home. Um, And, you know, I kind of looked at the market and thought, I don't want to put a bike or a treadmill into my small New York apartment. And I don't really like either of those ways of working out enough to invest at that price point. Um, I tried using a bunch of apps or streaming services, but found the experience to be really awkward. You were trying to follow along with the instructor while looking at a small screen, um, and all of the options were really not personalized or or adapted to to me and my goals. Um, And just coincidentally, we put a bunch of regular mirrors into our refined studios at the time, just full-length mirrors um, and did a poll of our clients and they said that the mirrors were the best thing that we had done all year at the studio was give them that feedback on their performance and also they found it really inspiring to watch themselves while they worked out and I realized that a lot of the things that made a great studio experience really the variety the personalization 
um, the immersiveness and the interaction uh, could be built into a mirror and you would solve also the form factor of a lot of the fitness equipment that uh, traditionally went in home. So it's, it's interesting because, you know, you kind of touched on it a little bit with, uh, with the prior business you started before mirror also, but this kind of application of, of, um, innovative hardware, right. And I think if you think about hardware right now, um, it's a really interesting time to be working in it because of Moore's law, computing power is getting faster and smaller. And then on the software side, it's, it's obviously interesting because we're entering the golden age of AI. So how do you think about kind of what's going on with hardware and software and then you know, the implications for a business that's at the intersection? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, most recently Apple is getting hammered for kind of hardware obsolescence, honestly. They've basically innovated themselves out of a market to a certain degree. So to me, that really supports the idea that we're now at a point where people care more about the content than the hardware, the stuff on our devices is frankly so good, we care less about the device. And I think that's sort of how I have approached kind of the balance of hardware, software, and content as it relates to the Mirror platform. Really, Mirror is a media company, which has a unique advantage in that we also control the channel that our content is distributed on. But ultimately, the success and failure of our business is really tied to to our content. Um, and so we prioritize resources accordingly. Yeah. So Mirror is a really interesting application. We've, we've kind of talked a little bit around it. Give us the kind of, you know, 30 second brief on, on Mirror um, and, you know, where the, where the business is today. Sure. So at its core, Mirror is a full length mirror. Um, it can either hang on your wall or sit on a stand. Uh, when it's off, you use it as a regular, regularly functioning mirror. And then when it's on, it's controlled by a smartphone app that allows you to browse for classes, personalize your experience, and functions as a remote control to control the mirror device. Uh, the mirror then streams live and on-demand fitness classes of any type, any level, any time. So cardio strengths, yoga, Pilates, boxing bar, stretching, uh, really, you name it, um, levels one through four, absolute beginner to expert, and 15 minutes to 60 minutes. Um, and the content then adapts in real time based on your goals, preferences, any limitations, as well as uh, biometric data. So what your heart rate is doing, um, as well as feedback you're giving us through the app. So um, it's basically having a, a fitness studio in your home. And so one of the fundamental pieces there, I think, is that you guys are focusing on, it seems to me from an, from an outside perspective, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is behavior change, right? And, and something I'm always interested in when kind of evaluating companies is, is this idea of how to tell whether something's a fad or, or a behavior change. And you know, there's a lot of kind of debate in the tech world on you know, whether some of these new age fitness products, you know, like a Peloton, et cetera, are fads or, or they actually signify kind of fundamental shifts in, in ecosystem and, and behavior? You know, obviously, you have to feel the latter. Um, so give us some insight into kind of what, what leads you to that belief. Um, I guess, actually, I, I would probably argue against the idea that, that uh, sort of this um, period of connected fitness is representing a um, sort of a change in behavior. The idea that your home is the most convenient place to work out is is really not new. Um, there were multiple billion dollar in home fitness businesses over the past thirty years. You know, Nordic Track sold two million uh, devices in the late eighties, early nineties, pre internet. Um, 
you know, Total Gym is a similar story. P90X was a tremendous business. Um, I think, frankly, behavior is just stickier now because of advances in technology, which enable us to provide more variety, more community, um, really to replicate the out-of-home experience. Um, but the sort of the core behavior that the home is the best place to work out um, has been true true forever. I mean, I think to me, the question is really how long will gym survive if the <laughs> variety, community, and convenience you can get, uh, you can now get in home. Um, I thought it was really interesting. I learned recently that uh, Doug's Gym in Dallas, which is one of the uh, oldest continuously operating gyms in America, you opened in 1962, actually closed last year. Um, hmm. So it's sort of funny, you know, the oldest gym is only 55 years old and it's shutting down. So I, I think um, to me, I, I would sort of counter that technology is taking advantage of behavior that was already very much there. That's interesting. That's an interesting framing. So talk, talk about the kind of 10xing the product experience, right? So like you, you obviously have to overcome in some senses um, the community aspect, the kind of being around physical humanity, right? You can obviously build a community through it through an electronic platform, but, but talk a little bit more about, um, you know, kind of how do you quote unquote 10 X the product experience? You're obviously taking advantage of kind of the convenience, et cetera, as you laid out, but talk, talk a little bit more about how it's an improvement over the status quo. Yeah. I mean, I think if you, if you believe like, like I do that, we are not fundamentally changing behavior that we are, um, very much taking advantage of behavior that was already there and just providing, um, an improved experience that, uh, TEDxing, frankly, is not necessary, that um, y you need to provide an experience. You need to provide something that is immersive, which means great sound, great visuals, um, exciting content. You need the variety and freshness that makes uh, fitness, you know, sticky over time. Um, and you need people to feel like they're part of a brand that they care about and a shared experience that has meaning to them. Um, but, uh, you know, I think really what we're doing is kind of just right at the tip of the spear of what people were already doing. We're sort of meeting them where they already were um, and just sort of incrementally pushing, pushing things forward. And so talk a little bit more about kind of creating a, a top-notch experience, right? I, I think actually one of the things if you kind of take a macro lens, uh, again, from an outside-in kind of perspective, I think New York startups specifically are, are really good at this idea of bundling, you know, existing technology and really intentionally thinking about um, the psychology of the consumer and, and creating a really top-notch experience versus, you know, some of the other hubs like a Boston, a Silicon Valley being real stewards of kind of hardcore technical innovation. Yep. How do you, how do you think about the components of a great experience? Like where, where do you pull your inspiration from or how, what is, what does great experience mean to you? Yeah, I, I would agree with that assessment. Um, I mean, to me, the value of our product is in, it sounds sort of simplistic, but the value is in what gets used, not in what gets built. You know, there is value if the customer is willing to pay for it, not because it's difficult to make or costs a lot of money uh, to produce. So for us, we start with the customer and we work our way backwards into the technology, into the technology. Um, you know, I think perhaps it's something, uh, for me that might be perceived as a disadvantage, but has in fact turned out to be an advantage in that I, I don't come from a technology background. I've never worked at a 
tech startup. I've never built software before. Um, so as a result, you know, my lens is from physically teaching tens of thousands of people in a bricks and mortar yeah. studio over the course of a decade. And so it's, it's actually easier to be disciplined about what you build uh, when you start with the customer experience and you work backwards. And so talk about some of the specific ways that, um, that, that you've improved the customer experience. And I, I think one of the things where my mind goes is, you know, traditionally when you think of online learning, right. And, and my mind goes to online courses, which is not really the apples to apples, but when you think about online courses or online learning, there's typically much bigger drop-off rates. Um, and people typically have <clears throat> significantly better completion percentages in person. The, the interesting kind of nuance here is what you were talking about, which is making the experience, uh, you know, mirror, no pun intended, making the experience mirror what people are already doing in their daily lives. And, and I think you kind of have that natural churn or drop-off rates in, you know, going to the gym or working out anyways. Um, so have you seen, have, have you kind of seen increases in completion percentages, you know, people working out more, et cetera, um, as, as you've developed the product or how has that really worked? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Like, you know, our, our, our completion percentages are, are well over 95%. So, so quite hmm. high. I uh, mean, I think there's a bit of sort of like causation and correlation there, maybe, you know, if you look at like the average Khan Academy video, it can get over a million views. Um, but the average person who's committing to like a University of Phoenix degree online versus going to Harvard uh, probably has a lot more practical challenges in the way of their continuing their education um, that have led them to online education versus, you know, versus in real life education. Um, and I think it's, it's frankly the same for our audience. You know, our product appeals to people who have busy lives. Um, it's harder for them to get outside in real life. So our average customer is, you know, not 25. They're probably 40. They often have uh, multiple children. Um, and we also have a strong population of people who physically just don't feel comfortable in a in a public environment working out, be it due to, um, you know, their ability level or, or special physical needs. Um, so I think, you know, there, we're, we're definitely aware of the fact that in many cases we're serving an audience for whom bricks and mortar um, may, not, may not work. Um, but that's what's so great about technology is because you're able to personalize the offering to meet people where they are and then take them where they want to go. Um, and to me, that's, that's the biggest reason why fitness programs often don't work is you're serving people content that is not the right fit for them or is the wrong level of difficulty. And with technology, you can really solve for that. And it's, it's interesting to me, when you, especially when you mention, mentioned that demographic, because I, I think the price point to me makes a lot more sense when that's your kind of average or target demographic. How, how did you guys think about, you know, coming up with the right price point? Um, you know, obviously what, what superficially meets the eye, $1,500 for a mirror seems you know, really expensive, but, um, you know, like a, lot of, uh, like a lot of other, you know, products that are moving in home or so. I think there's an interesting apples to apples comparison when you start thinking of, you know, how much you spend on gym memberships or soul cycle classes, et cetera. So how did you think about the price point? And then how do you, um, how do you communicate it to the market? Yeah. I mean, frankly, our, our customer has, has said to us, they believe it's actually a great deal what they're getting because the mirror is really a, 
a fitness solution for their whole family. I mean, we average over two users per household, which means you're not just getting par- hmm. partners using the device. You're also frequently getting a child or a family member or a friend also uh, taking advantage of the membership. And so for, for these people, you know, $39 per month is the equivalent of a single class at a boutique studio. Um, so it's very easy for them to, to understand the, the value proposition. You know, it's complicated technology, so there is an upfront investment, um, although we do offer financing uh, via firm. And I think what's been interesting for us is that it's not, it has not just been sort of the Equinox SoulCycle uh, constituent who has been purchasing. We have 20% of our, our purchases are financed. We're getting people from um, every single state who just are able to understand um, the value of kind of investing in their health and, and they're prioritizing it. Yeah, it's interesting. You and it, it's interesting to me, to me also because you have a you've said this before, but you have a vision kind of beyond fitness, right? So the fitness market is you know, for those that are listening that weren't familiar, I wasn't familiar with this before this conversation. The fitness market is $14 billion, but the smartphone market is close to half a trillion and, and quickly growing. So talk a little bit more about this idea of being the screen in everyone's lives. Uh, what are the other applications beyond fitness that most interest you? Yeah, I think uh, to me, what's so exciting about what we're building is we're building a, a content agnostic platform that is really just designed for immersive interactive in-home experiences and fitness makes a lot of sense as our first vertical because it is something for which there's a clear need for for in-home engagement and it's something where subscription behavior is already very ingrained it's easy for the customer to benchmark against um, you know gym membership but once the mirror becomes sort of a seamless part of your home and your life, it makes sense for it to be part of your daily ritual in many ways. Um, so I think in the short term, that means expanding to sort of uh, wellness content that's adjacent to fitness. So we expand into meditation this year. We have our eye on, on rehabilitation um, and then down the line into other things for which um, the mirror's assets would make sense. So things like fashion and beauty or just general life organization, chat, calendaring, image curation. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of um, a lot of things we can do as we grow and we're sort of making choices to ensure that um, mirror is the third screen is our is our destination. And how do you think about, you know, the next applications, you mentioned some of them, how do you think about it from an in-house content development perspective versus partnership? You know, obviously, it, it breaks down at the nuance, right, of those different applications. But is there kind of a philosophical, like, set of guiding principles or so that, that you think through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... Um... For me, I've, I've made a fundamental shift from my life as a studio owner in which I was building a product and a brand to um, CEO of Mir, where we're building a platform. And for us, it makes sense at the start of our, our journey to be really controlling the content experience. We make all of our content in-house with our team. I'm sitting right next door to our, our live production studio, um, but we're introducing our first content partnership um, within the next few months. And my expectation is that as we grow, a smaller and smaller percentage of our content will be ours. Um, because in order to really be the platform for inter- immersive interactive experiences, we need to be able to, to call on partners to, um, 
build our, our ecosystem. And so talk about that ecosystem a little bit more, right? Because there's an interesting kind of flywheel effect that takes place at scale in the business. How do you how do you think about the overall ecosystem you're creating and then the individual components of it? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, I think for my studio, uh, you know, one one happy customer could tell another happy customer in their neighborhood and and we sort of would grow that way. But for a national business that's connecting people to each other, you know, via this incredible platform, the ability for our customers to be our, our greatest advocates is just so much more powerful. Um, so we really, we think about how to build that feedback loop from, you know, current customer to potential customer and current customer to us um, as, as much as we can and sort of in, in everything we do. Um, you know, even so far as our most recently, we're building like a Slack integration for a set of ambassadors so hmm. that we can, our team can basically just sort of hear directly from some of our, um, our biggest fans and biggest detractors and are, we're able to um, kind of absorb and interpret feedback. And so we can iterate more quickly. Talk, talk a little bit about kind of the practical side of running the business. Um, if, if I kind of segment your business, the way I think about it is, you're simultaneously running a hardware business, a software business, a media business, and an e-commerce business with, with mirror products. And so how do you think about, you know, what to prioritize and, and how to keep the execution tight against the vision, especially, you know, as a, as an early stage startup? Yeah. I mean, that's probably the, the hardest thing that we do. Um, I think the first piece is just understanding um, your values as a business. So for us, we sort of talk about how, the there's a difference between 99% and that 1% is actually um, a big distance and very important, um, which is sort of designed to say that in mere in a mere world, better is better. We believe in, in excellence. Um, but that means that if you really are focused on quality, that uh, sometimes speed has to slow down. So for us, we spend a lot of time saying no to things so we can really focus on what we do well and make a significant impact, um, which is, I think, challenging in, in a startup when things are often very urgent, <laughs> but not always important. Um, and so I think that, yeah, the way that we do it is we just we, we prior, prioritize quality over speed and spend a lot of time sort of planning so that we're able to quickly identify if something is um, really within our essential mission or not. Yeah. And how do you, how do you tactically do that? Right. Cause there's obviously there's tons of philosophies on, you know, from an org structure perspective, from an operating model perspective, is it, is it kind of a combination of the way you structure your teams? Is it more so a function of operating principles? How do you actually kind of tactically make those decisions of um, you know, need versus quality versus speed, et cetera? Yeah, I think a lot of it just starts with sort of the ethos from leadership and sort of who you hire at the top and um, and the message down to their teams. Our, our message is always slow down, get it right. Not, you know, I think Amazon has sort of this um, principle that most decisions can be undone and you need to kind of move fast and break things. And that that's really not our ethos here. Um, we believe that the small details are important and our customer cares about them. And so 
um, I think that that's part of it is just sort of who you hire at the top and how they disseminate the messages to their teams. Um, and also, I think maybe we have a, a bit more of a hierarchical organization as a result. Hmm. Um, so, you know, App- Apple has this concept of like the directly responsible individual, which we use here as well. And um, it's very clear at any point sort of who the directly responsible individual is. And it always sort of flows back up to the, the VP on the top of, of each silo, um, which means we do often have to move more slowly, but also means that we stay very disciplined and, and focused and we deliver very high quality results, I think. What's been the most rewarding rewarding part of building the business for you? Yeah, I mean, every day I, I open my phone and I look at our social media accounts and I just see a, a photo or a video or hear a story that makes me feel like what we're doing is fundamentally changing people's lives. Um, it sounds sort of trite, but, you know, I think that fitness is really fitness is the foundation of confidence and confidence is essential for anything you want to do in your life. And so every sort of uh, story that we get back about people saying, you know, I'm so proud of myself. I've, I woke up and did this, you know, 15 minute stretch class today and I didn't want to, or I just spent an hour with my child doing a dance class and I feel like, you know, so invigorated. Um, just really fuels what we do. Yeah, I, I really like that framing. And I, I, I kind of deeply believe in that ethos as well, which is I think sometimes startups get bucketed into into two buckets, which is, you know, are you are you kind of curing cancer? Are you solving, you know, what what seems to be an important problem? Or are you not? And I, I think oftentimes the, the startups that fall in the opposite bucket than not get a little undersold on the fact that, um, you know, for someone, you know, going through a medical issue, for example, right, or for a family, you know, an experience on mirror can actually be the best thing uh, about that day, right? So I, th- I think often that nuance is lost. So I I really like the framing of, of um, being inspired kind of by daily stories. Yep, absolutely. As we, as we round up the conversation, Bryn, I, I kind of want to ask you the, you know, the, the Peter Thiel question as, as applied to the fitness experience. And it's a little cliche, but I'm, I'm really curious to hear perspective, which is what, what is one truth about the fitness experience that you believe that very few people agree with you on? Yeah, um, I think Probably it's that effective fitness programs don't center on physical change. Um, To me, immediate experience always outweighs future rewards. So rewards really work when they're certain and immediate, which is challenging in, in fitness because fitness by its nature is not certain or immediate. So when a fitness program says you're going to be thinner or stronger I don't really think it's effective fitness marketing and often a workout that is hundred percent perfectly effective, but not fun or enjoyable is not going to be successful. So to me, I think that effective programs really should promise a great experience and give you positive feedback in the moment um, rather than focusing on future rewards. And I think kind of the extension of that is that I, I don't think that fitness is faddish. I think that most fitness programs are really focused on future rewards at the expense of the immediate experience, which leads people to become disengaged, but that actually customers presented with sort of um, that immediate experience um, would be quite capable of having a successful long-term fitness program. Well, Bren, this, is, this has been a really interesting conversation. I'm, I'm glad you were able to make the time. So you know, thanks again for joining us. And we, we really enjoyed having you on today. 
Thanks so much for having me.